Hey, this is DM Mitch from Dungeon Master's Block. And this is DM Chris. And if you are loving our podcast and you want to help us to grow and to support our podcast and see us get even better as a podcast, Chris, what can they do? Head over to our Patreon account. We've just started one up. Go to patreon.com and search Dungeon Master's Block and you'll find all of the great rewards that are in store for you at patreon.com. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, of course, uh, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch. And we also want to welcome you back to our second Divine Spotlight. Uh, This is our second episode in the Divine Spotlight series. We heard that you guys really like these. We decided to do more. And this week, we are going to be focusing on two gods, that we both decided to choose one of, correct, Mitch? We, I, I chose to talk about Moradin, you chose to talk about Kord, and so those are the two D&D gods that are from the lore that you guys will have recognized. Both of them are from first edition, you'll recognize them. We're going to talk a little bit about them, give you guys some more info that you may not have known, give you some plot hooks that you can possibly use to incorporate the, the gods into your worlds a little bit more, uh, and I will also be sharing one of one of my gods, Nyax. And uh, we also have a guest who will be presenting a god. That's we right. We have Tinzian from the Death D4 Dishonor, who's going to be coming on. He's going to be sharing with us some plot hooks. He's going to be sharing with us in our story time, which we'll get to in a little bit. And he'll also be sharing uh, a god from one of his worlds. So, spoiler alert for listeners of his. <laughs> Make sure that you don't listen to that part or listen to that part and just... Pretend like you know what's going on when it gets Shh, to that tell part. Him. Don't tell him. <laughs> so uh, before we get to his story time, we have a few shout-outs like we always do on this podcast for the five-star reviews that were given to us on iTunes. Uh, the first one we have is entitled, One of the Best DM Resources Out There, and it's by Lee Shull. It says, This podcast has been as useful to me as the DMG itself. Ooh, that's that's pretty good. That's a I pretty like that. good review right there. It could just stop there, but it keeps yep. going. These guys have some great ideas. Great ways to go about situations and just great content. Keep up the awesome work, guys. Thank you so much, Lee Shull. That's yeah, thank great, you very much. Great. I mean, that makes me feel really good. Thank and you. And we, we have another one from Oil and Gas Dad. It says uh, his title is a great podcast for DMs and PCs alike. He writes after learning D and D and A D and D many many moons ago, reveling in the worlds of Dark Sun, Mistara, Greyhawk, Kryn, and others. Then losing my way. Dot dot dot. <laughs> I found the Dungeon Master's Block. Listening to these guys talk about the struggles that I had as a DM a long time ago and allow me to share their joys and pains with them on their journeys as dungeon masters and characters has once again ignited the fire to pick up pencils, dice, books, and rekindle my imagination. If you are a dungeon master, the multiple segments may answer questions, provide inspiration, or simply let you know that there are others marching right alongside you in your endeavor to weave together a wonderful world. If you are a player, the same segments will help give you a rare insight into the mind of the person behind the screen. The information, personality, and obvious heart put into this podcast is rarely found in other podcasts along the same lines. Give it a chance. You won't regret it. So thank you, Oil and Gas Dad. That was a very, very sweet and very humbling yeah, podcast review for us. We appreciate that so yeah. much. So thank you very much. 
But without further ado, we're going to jump into story time that Tinzian is going to be bringing to us. Story time. The time during the episode where we talk about what happened last week during our campaigns, our favorite moments, what we learned about ourselves, and what we learned about each other. Please join us now as we enjoy story time. So now, like we've said, we're going to have Tinzian on the, the podcast, and he's going to be sharing with us a story about the time that they ran into the chain god known as Tharizdun. Okay, well, the party had been um, encountering a lot of interesting things. Um, they'd gone down into one of the drow caverns that caused quite a lot of chaos down there. Lolth uh, wiped out the party of... Um, Party, but the senior leadership of the clerics of the uh, cavern, and after wiping everything out, uh, clearing house, the party went back up top to um, where they were mustering, and they encountered Darzadu, which, in my case, he's a mind flayer. Hmm. Now, I love those mind flayers. He's now he's known as being the chain god, uh, usually chained up. He's white and sane. Um, he's perhaps the most bat sherbert uh, crazy thing on the planet or in the galaxies. But um, crazy is as crazy does. He's actually seeks redemption and okay. offers to put himself on trial. Let's the co- let the cosmos judge him and um, find out should he die. Or can he be rehabilitated? So the party is cast as both prosecutor, defense. One is um, picked Cesar. Uh, He is the older character. Um, He is picked to be the judge. However, Hmm. he sits underneath a manifestation of uh, death in terms of the Grim Reaper, because, in you know, as we all know, there's no greater judge than death in terms of some of these games where everything kind of hangs on a thread. So the party goes through and actually does a presentation, an actual trial that takes place over, you know, a couple of um, episodes. And if you want to actually pick up where the episodes are, it starts around episode 113. And that's in our, our podcast feed and you can all go through there, through episode 116. But I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens when Tharzadun is found to be uh, rehabilitatable. He turns a new leaf. He actually becomes a good god. Hmm. Actually a variation on a god, but he becomes good. Will, uh, will we find out if we listen to that episode, those episodes? Yes. Okay, right, so we gotta go, uh, listeners. We gotta go do that then. <laughs> um, it's just kind of, kind of a, kind of a quirky thing. Came out of the blue again. It's just uh, jumping around, and uh, it was really fun because you sort of think, you know, God is never going to change. Um, what is it going to appear as in this case? You know, mind flare. They had encountered it elsewhere, but uh, didn't realize at the time. This was the first time they realized. Oh wait, we are dealing with something very close and direct, whereas they had dealt with Loth indirectly 
then they dealt with Orcus in a way of, you know, having the rod of Orcus for a while and that sort of stuff. But <laughs> this was kind of something very close to them. If the god snapped, they were all going to die. <laughs> were uh, your players very skeptical of this whole quote-unquote uh, turning over a new leaf? Were they Were they worried that at, you know, holding their swords at every moment, like, this is going to go sour? They, they were extremely skeptical. One one thought that it, it could possibly happen, but they were constantly waiting for the gotcha. Yeah. Um, like, this Xanatari, is a trick, like, there's another agenda here. Yeah. Xan, Xanatari is um, the battle cleric, and she's a cleric of an unknown god, um, unnamed god of storms and lightning. Um, she's the one that tends to electrocute Drow by various means, by <laughs> gags and uh, things. There are earlier episodes where that happens. But she's sort of on the viewpoint of, well, lightning struck twice. Well, it already struck, and this is what it forged. It's not going to strike again, and you know the deities aren't going to forgive and forget all that this thing, all that this creature has done. You know, you don't sure. get the, you, don't, you don't get the second chance. Um, and I think she was put on defense. I think the, you know, just the, how things worked out and the roles, she had to defend the god's ability to, um, rehabilitate himself. The other ones, um, you know, they, they did their part, but it was actually in a trial court type setting. Um, that, and that's a really, to... yeah, that's really interesting. And, <laughs> Just the different positions that each of your players played in that court-like scenario. We've talked about uh, on the podcast before giving your players power over changing your world. And, uh, I mean, you literally gave them power over judging a god. <laughs> not something yep. that not something that normally DMs right. allow their players to do. And I'm sure that uh, your players appreciate uh, the fact that you are willing to allow them to do things huge things like that that change the course of your world well it's it's part of the sometimes i get you know with, with a story i'll get walked into a corner if i don't know it's a story a corner and just another part of the story it'll it'll work if i was planning on using him as the big bad for something and they're going to wipe him out then you know that doesn't work for me i'm going to i'm going to have angst i'm going to try to throw my players under the bus a bit that sort of thing but as it worked out they came to the point where this trial made sense for the game world well then assigning them the responsibilities all came down to random roles that others like normally what i'll do is the party will roll for big things but they can designate someone to roll for them so in this case you know player a rolls for what player b is going to do and then so you know so forth around so they came in without the benefit of going, oh, I need to be know what a defense attorney does. <laughs> right. Because they're not going to know what that is. They're going <laughs> to go in and be back, derp a derp a derp a derp, and hope the judge doesn't smack them. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was a fun and challenging exercise for everyone because I'm like, okay, I potentially have a god going out the door. Right. Or god coming in. It's a big thing. But to me, this is fun. This is an enjoyable adventure everyone else was having fun with it as well but it wasn't a oh they've won up to me or i'm one-upping them or something along those lines but giving them that power 
didn't seem like I'm forcing the issue. That's what I, I don't try to do is force the issue. Right. So they could have completely ignored it. Something else could have happened, blah, blah, blah. But it was fun. So giving them the ability to be judge, jury, and executioner, having to live with that afterwards, pretty big deal. Yeah, that's that's something that your players are going to remember for a long time. The time that they got to put a god on trial. Well, he kind of put himself on trial. But the time <laughs> that they got to run prosecute a, a god. Yeah. That's that's a really cool concept. One thing, one thing I should point out is the party knows that there are future versions of themselves around. Time is very wibbly-wobbly in my camp. Okay. But never do they know necessarily, aside from two characters, and they don't know at what point in time those two characters are from in the future, they operate under the belief that they could always be there. So their actions could be, hey, I'm going to go do that crazy thing because I know I'm going to be there. Yet none of them know who's actually on that airship that's roaming around um, that they presume to have, you know, their future selves are riding on. I like that idea. Anything with time travel, that always interests me. <laughs> hey, well, thank you for sharing that story. Um, we're going to head into the meat now, um, but we want to encourage our listeners to uh, go and check out those episodes so that you can hear that story in its full length and find out what happens in this trial of a god. Uh, but let's head into the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Carve it up! Just a mouthful! No! The flat meat back on the menu, boys! Alright, so for the meat today, we are going to be looking at the gods Morden. Cord, Chris, you're going to be sharing about one of your gods, Nyax, yep. and then Tinzian, our guest, welcome. Hi there. Uh, he's going to be sharing about one of his homebrew gods from his game. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to kind of uh, we're we're going to interview Tinzian and find a little bit out about him. So Tinzian, you uh, you are the guy, the man, the myth, the legend behind the Death D4 Dishonor podcast, correct? I am, and uh, I am neither captain nor um, scallywag to the rest of the crew. Everyone kind of uh, chips in, but yes, I'm I'm the potential uh, player killer. Okay, that works. That's <laughs> sweet. Killer, like so, uh, what what made you decide to start that podcast? I had a bunch of friends that had never played D and D, and I had a couple people that had played D and D, and we're like, you know. We want to get together. We want to hang out more. Um, they were part of uh, what was the Geek Bits podcast okay. that's uh, been defunct now for a couple of years. Um, and we just decided, hey, let's try this podcast thing just for fun. We'll record our actual adventures and we'll see where it goes. No big deal. Just we're going to be online anyways for Skype. Let's do this. Yeah. Well, one of the cast members had a friend in Australia, so we invited him just to get the foreign take on things. And the podcast started out as an actual, um, I think it was the H.1 book series for fourth edition, um, Keep of the Shadowfell. And it started out literally the first five, six episodes are just, you open a door, you go here, we're trying to play by the rules, right, da, da, right. da, da, da. <laughs> trying to teach them, you know, trying to teach people how to play it. And for the other people who hadn't gotten in the fourth edition at the time teach them, you know, power cards and all these other things and, you know, just make a fun of it. Eventually it got to the point where everyone had a silent, silent consensus of we're going to toss the rules out the door. The DM can make, make up the rules 
And we're here for the story because we want to have fun and we want to laugh. And we don't necessarily want to be uh, killed by rules. We'll be killed by something interesting. So it came more and more that I became the storyteller versus just a DM. So what the podcast is all about is I make up the story on the fly each and every weekend. And it's a 166 episodes of a continuous story that I think have only been written down in terms of some vague notes by one of the players, but um, it's all one large adventure. Nice. So now you, when you DM, you actually do it all improv all the time. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I, I tend not to even try to think about it before, you know, the, the day that I'm going to record, aside from just what what do I need to do as a recap, sure. um, try to have some continuity thread if possible. And if not, you know, some explanation as to why something happens, but I'm not trying to rub my hands gleefully going, they're going to run into this guy or that guy, because often my cast will take uh, the road less traveled, yeah, quite extensively, sure. yep. <laughs> with, with with massive amounts of glee, because they know it's the path less traveled. Yep. <laughs> so I'm more nimble on my feet, so to speak, in terms of telling a story when even I don't know where the road's going to go. And then as so that, and then as I'm DM, not, you're not frustrated when they do take you off that path and go, oh, but I planned this. Why do you guys always, you know, you're able to roll with it and just have as much fun as they are. We got a 16 episode uh, story arc out of what was supposed to have been. 20 minutes of one night <laughs> but nice. they stayed there and kept doing stuff and <laughs> so it, it just turned out in this huge massive thing and it was a big push for one of the characters um Zanatari, and it just it happened to just really work out and i'm fine with posting content as long as there's content to be yeah. put out it's not junk so i'm not gonna <laughs> right. look 16, 16 episodes in the face no sure way. yeah of course, um, that's that's great, and it's funny because sometimes that's the sometimes that turns out to be one of the best and most fun of experiences for the player. Sometimes the ones where it's just like, you know, I didn't, I thought that this was going to be a little blip, and you guys turned it into a whole story itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so one last question, and then we'll get talking about some gods. Uh, I, I can hear it now. There's players or DMs out there who hear completely 100% improv and they cringe a little bit. Uh, they like to plan and have it planned and have it planned. What would some advice be to them about possibly trying it your way and not planning everything out 100% just kind of going for it? I think you need to be mindful of what your, both your goals are and what your players' goals are. Sure. Um, for my audience and for my players, this is what works really well. I don't have anyone sitting there cringing at roles. I don't have people looking at, um, you know, you didn't do do it right this way. But they're there for the sake of the story. So I'm, I'm delivering a goal. There's a product that people want. And that's fine. But I'm also keeping my players in mind of I don't want them bored. I don't want them horribly confused. And I don't really want them horribly em embarrassed if they ever decide to go to a game and, you know, someone else is, is doing it or they're going to a weekend con and they sit down at the D&D table. They know enough about dice. They know enough about rules. They know enough about waiting in the order and the precedence and the power cards that they can stand up for themselves as players, whereas before the podcast, they didn't have those skills. 
So they may need to brush a course on, no, this is actually how you roll properly. Right. But they've got enough that they won't hold up the table. They can still have fun. So to the DMs that want to have everything written out, scripted, if that's what your players like, power to you. If your players are resisting you or fighting you or you feel that they're doing something otherwise, you may want to look at your environment and adjust from there. Great. Well, thank you for answering all those questions. We uh, want to encourage our listeners to go check out the Death D4 Dishonor uh, podcast. I love that title, by the way. Who came up with that? Was it you? Yes, it was. Love it. Great title. So without uh, any further ado, let's start jumping into talking about the four gods that we're going to talk about for this episode. We're going to start off with Moradin. Uh, Moradin was a, is a god. He's been around since first edition, and he's all the way up until today. He's still going strong. I hear a lot, still people, this can be one of their favorite gods from D&D. He's my favorite. I love, I love playing you dwarves. You love dwarves. Yeah. I love dwarves. So he's ah, you spoiled obviously... it. He's a dwarven god. Ah. Oh, oh, sorry. Right. Uh, but yeah, so uh, Moradin, he is a Forgotten Realms god. I wasn't able to find this anywhere, but I, I kind of wonder if he actually started in Greyhawk, simply because I believe Forgotten Realms wasn't actually a official setting until 2nd edition, but... Um, you are correct. I am correct. There we go. Thank you. I love uh, the Forgotten Realms. Yep. Uh, so Forgotten Realms, that's that's where he is uh, from. Yeah, Forgotten Realms. That I think that's my favorite official D&D setting. And Moradin is one of the greatest gods from there. So let's let's go through the titles and everything of Morden. As far as Morden, titles include the Allfather, the Creator, a Dwarf Father, and the Soul Forger. As far as his power, he would be considered part of the greater power class. It means he's one of the strongest gods out there. Not not many pe- people mess with him. Uh, his alignment is lawful good. He's a, a his portfolio consists of creation, metalcraft, protection. Smithing, and of course, stonework. His domains include creation, earth, protection, dwarf, and good. As far as gods that are above him, there's not any. There's no superiors. He doesn't have a superior. Nope. Um, When you look at his description and history uh, of Moradin, he is, like we said, a lawful good god of the dwarves, and he is the chief deity in their pantheon, the the dwarvish pantheon. Um, He's a harsh but fair judge. Uh, he is the strength and force of will embodied. He inspires dwarves' inventions and constantly seeks to improve that race, encouraging their good nature, intelligence, and harmonious existence with other good races while battling their pride and isolationist tendencies. It's said that Morden, in, in dwarven myths, he was incarnated from rock, stone, and metal, and that his so- his soul is an ember of fire. So his his heart and his soul just burns and burns and burns. He's just... That's what fuels him to keep going. Uh, it was said he forged the first dwarves from metals and gems and breathed souls into them, and he blew on them to cool them off. Morden, I love that kind of thing. Like I love the stories that you get behind uh, races and their origin stories and how they were created, and that image, it's very Tolkien-like. I, I, I believe that's very similar to the way that the dwarves were created in Tolkien's literature, or that they were forged from the earth and... Love that kind of thing. I just want to know that about all the races of yeah. D&D and how they, how they were created. Yeah, and, and knowing that might help your players, or, or you as a player, be able to play your dwarf a little bit more. Because I know for me, I've always played dwarves where it's just simply, I'm a dwarf, I can kick butt if I want to. And now <laughs> it's like, okay, I should have a little bit more respect 
for Moradin, you know, at playing a dwarf from here on out. Uh, but he's also responsible for, there's things uh, called Dwerger in uh, D&D world, and he was responsible for banishing the evil gods of the Darrow and the Dwerger from the surface. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see the... Banish the, them to un- the Underdark, yep. 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 Uh, his avatar appears uh, while the Iron Star Dwarf clan was fleeing from the orcs at the Stonebridge after a desperate appeal by Davros Frostbeard. And he helped them defeat the orcs and gain safe passage to Ironford, thereby forming the Fallen Kingdom. Morden, as we've said before, is the head of the Dwarven Pantheon. He's the, the god of all of the dwarves. He's married to Baronar Trusilver and Counts Gurmush and Maglubiet among his fiercest foes. Uh, he is very friendly with Pelor. Hey, there's a, it's a pretty big pantheon if you look at all the names of all the dwarves in that pantheon. So, uh, Morden's got a pretty high position over a bunch of a bunch of other gods. Yep. Um, he also, when in fourth edition, they added to the lore by Morden counts Asmodeus as one of his chief enemies, and he is closely allied with Bahamut now. Which is kind of weird because you think of, I mean, I think of Lord of the Rings off the top of my head, and they don't really. Particular dwarves don't particularly care for dragons. Well, seeing how they, well I'm sure he's. I'm well, sure he's not friends with Tiamat. That's true. I'm sure he's not either. But it's just, it's just weird in general to think dwarves and dragons being friendly together in my mind. But so as far as dogma, Moradin, he's the father and creator of the dwarven race. We've talked about that. The way that he wants his people to to emulate him and honor him is by their workmanship and smithing, stoneworking, and other tasks, doing them to the best of their ability. Uh, he wants them to emulate it as far as how he would do it. It's a callback to their creation. I mean, he made them. They were right. <laughs> his workmanship. Right. They were called from the earth themselves. And so uh, that's kind of carrying on that and in in honoring him. Right. Yeah. And uh, he wants. Wi- uh, he says wisdom is derived from life and tempered with experience. So dwarves will constantly, I would imagine, look up to the elders of their of their councils because they've been through life, and it's weathered them, and it's tempered them, and they, they have tons of life experience uh, dealing with basically anything they could ever come up against. He also wants them to advance the dwarven race in, in all areas of life, innovate with new processes and skills, uh, found new kingdoms and clan lands, defending the existing ones from all threats, uh, lead the dwarves into the traditions laid down by the soul forger, honor your clan leaders as you honor Moradin. So... I think that you see a lot in his dogma of that lawful good alignment of discipline, like discipline and uh, respecting your clan leaders, respecting them like you do Moradin. Like that's right. that goes very well. Much and along because with that. of that, he his task given to them is to remove all of the orcs from the face of the earth, um, because they don't emulate those mm-hmm. types of things. They don't emulate the honor that they're looking for. You know, so he's he he tells them to get rid of them all. Um, and he's he's he is upset if they flee from their foes or kill their fellow dwarves. He's not about that at all. It's interesting too with his his belief in the dwarves are not supposed to be isolationists and hide in their mountains, but they're right. supposed to go out and spread and uh, find new lands and settle new kingdoms. Which I think you know a lot of what we see in fantasy lore with dwarves is very different than that. And I mean, it even calls out to it with Morden's people being isolationists themselves. Dwarves would, a lot of times, if they could, just, hey, we got everything we need in this mountain. No need to leave. Right. Uh, but that's not what the the superior of the entire Dwarven pantheon wants of the dwarves. And right. so I would imagine, uh, we're about to talk about his worshippers, I would imagine whoever worships Morden 
is going to be pushing for dwarves uh, to not fall into that isolationist uh, mentality, but to go out and spread and make new kingdoms and uh, settle in new lands. Uh, but as far as the worshippers of Moradin, uh, they look to improve the lives of their family, their clan, and the dwarf race as a whole. Dwarves who kill other dwarves are seen as sinning against Moradin as he created all dwarf life. As far as his clergy, as far as like, the priests and stuff that, that worship Moradin and help his people worship him better, uh, Moradin's clerics, they wear an attire that deals mostly with earthly co- earthy colors, with chainmail and other silvered helms atop their heads. His clerics are usually drawn from family lines like most dwarven occupations. So if your father was a, a priest of Morden, more than likely you will end up being a priest of Morden. That's kind of how the lineage works. His, uh, his clerics are known as the San Lenor, uh, and they are drawn from the family lines, which is, is interesting. That kind of pulls right out of, I think there's, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of religions in the world that do that, but I think of Jewish uh, back, yeah. you know, Jewish tradition that their priests were drawn out of family lines and from the tribes and kind of pulling real world elements into that um, that religion. Uh, as far as military order the, that Morden has charged his followers with, there's there's a group called the Hammers of Morden, um, which they they are that group. They're dominated by crusaders and fighting clerics uh, with chapters in nearly every single dwarven stronghold. And members are drawn from uh, every dwarven clan. The hammers serve both as commanders of the dwarven armies and as elite strike force, skilled in dealing with anything from large groups of orcs to great worms to malevolent fiends from the lower plains. So they they deal with basically everything. They are the first line of defense that that is called upon. Uh, the order is dedicated to the defense of existing dwarven strongholds and carving out of new dwarven territories. Uh, individual chapters have a great deal of local autonomy, but in times of great crisis. A grand council assembled to plot strategy and, and divine Morden's will. So in times of in times of trouble, they all kind of get together. They're like, all right, forget party lines, forget dwarven, dwarven heritage. We need to get together. We need to talk about this. We need to figure this out. We need to work it out. And another elite uh, military order of Morden is the Order of the Anvilite. And Mitch, you're gonna talk a little bit about. Yeah, these. you're not gonna find anything about this online because it's something I've added into. You know, we we like to share on this podcast lore that we've added in that you could use in your worlds as well but that's another order that i've added into my world order of the anvil of light it's another elite military order of moradin um, and it's led by their leader who is the the clan chieftain of the redbeard clan and this clan chieftain has led this group for it seems like ages Uh, and they are very secretive there's not a lot uh, known about them but what is known about them is that they are a group that is dealing with trying to stop a an old deity from trying to return to the material plane. I don't want to give too much about that away because I think that might be a campaign we might do later. So okay. we won't talk about that now. However, keep looking for it in story time in the future. As far as temples go with Morden worshippers. Uh, Morden is worshipped at forges and hearths mainly. Uh, melted metals are always sacrificed to him monthly. Uh, in Atos, I have placed all... In, it's very common for a temple to Morden to be placed in the center of dwarven civilizations, which I think makes a lot of sense since Morden, I think, would be central to a lot of he's held in high esteem is what it sounds yep. like he is. That would that would make sense. And in these, yep. in these temples, uh, armor and weapons would be made and uh, the blessing of Moradin is said to be put into all weapons and armor made in his temple. 
so there's a few relics that we want to cover, and then we're going to give you guys some adventure hooks that we can that you can use for your own campaigns, dealing specifically with Morden and his followers. So the first one is the Shield of Resolute. This is a plus two Mithril Moderate Fortification Heavy Shield, uh, which if you don't care to call it that, just call it a plus two Mithril Shield. We'll just go with that. Uh, and it is made from hundreds of strips of Mithril, each of a different size, riveted together. It is said that the shields of the Resolute are assembled from pieces of shields from hundreds of dwarves who fell in battle defending their homelands. Goblinoids and giants with, uh, within 30 feet who gaze upon a shield of the Resolute must succeed on a will save DC of 17 or be shaken uh, if they have the same or more HD than the wielder, or frightened if they have fewer HD. This functions like a gaze attack, and so the goblinoids and giants must make saves at the beginning of their turns uh, every round unless they take measures to avoid seeing the Shield of Resolute. So, I mean, they could turn around, they could specifically gaze away from it, but every time that they look back at it, they're going to have to make that save. And then we have the Axe of Ancestral Virtue, which this is uh, one of Morden's high priests volunteered to be bound into the original Axe of the Ancestral Virtue ages ago, uh, and his personality has since been duplicated into what few copies of the weapon that exist. The priest, who refuses to reveal his old name, is a fierce warrior who urges his owner to attack the ancient enemies of the dwarves, which are goblinoids and giants, uh, at every available opportunity. He takes great delight in illuminating targets with fairy fire, salving honor wounds, which cure moderate wounds, and granting godspeed, which is haste. Uh, he judges wielders on how well they adhere to traditional dwarven culture, and he rebels mightily against non-dwarves who so much as pick him up. In Atos, I've added a couple more artifacts to the world. One of them is called Sacred Oath, and this is an ancient hammer that is blessed by Moradin himself. The legend goes behind the hammer that Sacred Oath was a hammer, the hammer of the first of the dwarf kings, Olin Oathkeeper. And when Oathkeeper went to war against the first of the dwarger, uh, Morden gave the hammer great power to aid the king. Uh, when the newly enchanted sacred oath in his hand, Oathkeeper drove the Dwarger into the Dark Bellows, which if you listen to the podcast, you know that's my version of the Underdark, uh, way, where they have remained ever since. It is said whoever holds the hammer commands great strength in those around them. And then secondly, the Shield of Erla, a heavy shield made of adamantine, Forged to look like the face of Morden, the shield is head by the king of Erla, which is the first city of dwarven kind, uh, the first dwarven kingdom. It is said that as long as the shield of Erla remains in Erla, that the dwarves will always be able to defend the holy city. So, uh, if this thing ever gets taken away from Erla, things are probably going to be pretty bad, whether it's just superstition or not. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there's going to be somebody that's pissed off and trying to get it back regardless. <laughs> now, the, the priests are going to be pretty pissed yeah, off. Yeah, right, The right. king's going to be pissed off. Right. All right, so let's talk about some ways that you can have uh, Morden be a part of your story, a part of uh, your campaign, some adventure hooks. Tinzian, you want to go first with this one? Sure. Um, this is sort of overlooking everything uh, that you've talked about, but let's say, hypothetically, um, a clan of dwarves has recently and by recently, I mean within the last week or two, finished wiping out one of the local orc kingdoms nearby, thereby reducing themselves um, into something of a safe state. However, all the years of fighting and conflict and stuff have left this particular clan of dwarfs just a bit bloodthirsty. Since the head of the clan is also supposed to be, at least in whatever world I'm playing, 
would have some skill with blacksmithing, probably be the best blacksmith of the clan. Mm-hmm. He is tasked by Moradin in an effort to bring his clan back into peace and, you know, proper dormant thing. You know, essentially the insides are too hot. The, you know, the metal and everything, uh, the hypothetical metal is too hot. They need to create something that will be a token going forward of this clan towards Moradin. But they need to set out both the head of the clan and one of the weakest apprentices that they have out into the world, some sort of adventure to sort of cleanse and reforge themselves mm-hmm. to bring that back in as an example. Because if these these dwarves still look up to Morden, still look up to their clan leaders, honor and everything, else like that, they will follow along, but they need to see what the clan leader wants them to do next. They go out, they have an adventure, they get reforged, they come back as something different. You know, they're still dwarven, they're still themselves, but that bloodthirst has been turned into whatever this clan is going to do going forward for the next 20 years or until the orcs come back or, you know, that sort of thing. Kind of a, a, a re-genesis of the clan. I think Morden would be very happy with that. Hmm, I like that. It's got, like added something to the dwarves, like, added a template onto them almost. Right. Yeah, and, and, may, and maybe, uh, you know, Morden shows up, or one of his lackeys shows up here or there on the sly. You know, just something to get, you know, some, something there that shows Morden that they have not really forgotten him amongst all this slaying sure. and fighting, which is, they're trying to do all this stuff to please him over here, but they're sort of forgetting, you know, steps Q through Z over here. Sure. Let's get this balanced out here. Nice. Very cool. All right, Chris, you want to go next? Yeah. Uh, mine is not so much uh, an adventure hook as it is a once-a-year type festival where the best dwarven smiths from each city that you have within your world come together, and it's called the Dwarf Smithing Games, or you can call it whatever the hmm. heck you want. Um, and it deals specifically with three elements. Stone crafting weapons crafting, and all around just metal crafting, whether that's jewelry or ornate metals or whatever it is. And each group has to participate in the same thing at the same time. Out of the stone, they can create a bust or a statue of Moradin or whatever it is that they want to build to create Moradin out of stone, as they are said to have been forged out of stone. So it's their best representation of what it might have been like for Moradin to create the dwarves. Then you have the best weapons uh, that... Are, that have to have the seal and the symbol of Morden on it. Um, usually, you could, you would probably find them building axes. I mean, that would probably make sense as their dwarves to make those types of axes. They make them either magically enchanted or, or just to look the best or however they want to do it in order to, to please Morden out of their crafting skills of weapons. And then out of the ornate metals, they could make jewelry or they could make uh, just any type of sculpture or crafting out of metal, just in general, just to show their all-around skill in all of the different areas of smithing. So that was kind of my idea, kind of some sort of dwarven smithing games that you could do in your world. Awesome. I, I love uh, any kind of festival, any kind of game. Yeah, I know you do. I figured you might like that. <laughs> it's yeah. always, always fun to do that in yep. different towns and such. Yep. I'd love to be part of a dwarven smithing games under the mountain. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. All right, What's yours? At- yeah, Chris, my adventure hook for Moradin is one that you are actually pretty familiar with since this past week we just actually got to be able to play it with this adventure hook. So in my world, Moradin 
has created this maze of the gods and it's this incredibly huge maze and there are traps and there are trials and everything monsters creatures throughout this entire maze there are large dwarf statues that walk around they're the guardians of this maze as well as many other powerful and strange encounters that you guys will be facing in this maze. But I think this is a great idea. As Moradin is a crafter, I think it makes a lot of sense that he could do something along these lines. Make a labyrinth. Make a dungeon for your world in which Moradin created it, perhaps with the help of the other dwarven gods. And your PCs have to, for whatever reason go through this. Maybe they're all dwarves. You play an all-dwarven campaign, and they all worship Morden, and this is a trial maze that they have to get to to prove themselves worthy warriors. Or maybe there's a artifact of Morden hidden in the center of the maze that they wish to get, and only those worthy of getting through this maze, this dangerous maze, are the ones who can claim this powerful artifact. So that's my idea. If you want to listen to more about Moradin's Maze, you got to listen to our story times as they keep coming up. All right, so the next god that we're going to talk about is the god Kord. Uh, Kord is from the world of Greyhawk. He was created in all the way back in first edition, like many of the gods we've talked about so One far. One of the originals. Yep, and he is still going strong, present day, still a god that people will use all the time. Uh, Kord has the title of the Brawler. Uh, in my world of Atos, I've added a couple more titles that uh, some of them will make perfect sense and some of them will explain along the way, but other titles that I've added for Court is specifically known as the Mighty Brawler, the Father of Conquest, Lord of Barbarians, Champion of All Arenas, and the Great Dragon Slayer. Uh, his power level is considered intermediate. His alignment is chaotic good, until they changed it in 4th edition. Right, right. Uh, his portfolio, he's known for things such as athletics, sports, brawling, of course. I mean, that that's his name, the brawler. Uh, strength, courage. He's also known for storms and, of course, courage. In Atos, I've also added in barbarians and dragon slaying, of course. Uh, and his domains are chaos, good, luck, strength, and competition. <laughs> Court is kind of a boss, so his superior, there really isn't one. There's Nobody, no I don't think anybody could contain Cord anyways. He'd probably <laughs> no, just kick the crap out not. of him. Yeah. All right, so when you're talking about Cord, Cord uh, is depicted as a hugely muscular man with a red beard and long red hair. He wears a fighting girdle made from a red dragon's hide, gauntlets from a white dragon's hide, and boots from a blue dragon side. Kind of a boss. Yep, kind of a boss. <laughs> Hence the name Dragon Slayer in your world. <laughs> yep. Uh, he wields the great sword Kelmar in battle. Kord is sometimes depicted by his urbanized faithful as a more civilized athlete or wrestler. I kind of took this one step for- further, and in Atos, uh, he's also depicted by his uh, the barbarian tribes, some of which you've come into contact recently, mm-hmm. like yes, nomadic barbarian tribes. Bear as, riders that yeah, suck. He's <laughs> depicted more of a tattooed, unkempt barbarian wielding a great axe uh, by those tribes, rather. So it's kind of like you got two sides of the coin, and then the one in the middle that's like, right. this is how cool right. looks. Is that kind of why Karab in my world has the barbarian to him? 
Well, that's, did you kind of carry that over a little bit? I think I think all many many of Court's uh, followers in any world would probably right, be barbarians. Right. But the tattoos in general kind of just goes along. I mean, I oh, know it's just spells on his yeah. arms and stuff like that, but that's cool. Cord, uh, he is also the son of Falcon and Cerule, and the grandson of Lendor. Uh, he is a foe of Dragonkind, so Dragonkind absolutely hate him, uh, especially lawful evil dragons. They cannot stand him. Cord's favorite heralds are Titans. His allies include Eldrin and huge Earth elementals. When it comes down to the dogma of Cord, it's summed up in the strong and the fit should lead the weaker. Bravery is the greatest quality in any ruler. Scorn, cal- cowardice. And Natos have kind of added a little bit more to this, uh, so you can take this for your Cord worshiper if this fits well uh, with your Cord worshiper. But they should also seek after conquest. The arena should be depicted as holy ground to a worshiper of Cord, and it should be treated as such. Uh, failure is a test of the will and strength, and but quitting is a true sign of weakness. Uh, also going along with that, the dragon cord relationships uh, really delved deep into them in the world of Atos. And so dragons to a cord worshiper are never to be trusted, um, and evil dragons are meant to be hunted down and killed. So what do his worshippers look like? Where can they be found? Cord uh, is the most popular of Sul deities, uh, and his followers are found throughout many barbarian states, throughout all of the barbarian states of the world of Greyhawk, as well as, I would imagine, in most of your worlds, barbarians, as well as my world and, and your world, Mitch, are found within most barbarian states. Yeah, Cord is worshipped uh, not just by barbarians in my world, but also by... Uh, athletes, so there's you've got that more urbanized faith right. um, by athletes, um, and there's even segments, and we'll talk a little bit more about these, but there's uh, segments of culture that are specifically like live their lives as dragon slayers, and they'll worship cord as well. Um, I even have a uh, another version of cord worshippers that live like they're barbarians who live in jungles, so like jungle people, and basically they they depict cord a little bit different. I didn't mention this before, but they depict cord as like this strong, muscular, tattooed man with a loincloth, and they don't depict his face. It's like this big tribal mask, and mm. so that's how they see nice. Cord. Nice, um, the cler- The clergy of Cord, um, in, I kind of had to add on to this because I wasn't able to find anything um, when I was working on Cord for my world, so I made the, cor- the clerics of Cord, uh, typically they wear little to no armor, um, going along with that barbarian... Uh, mentality. And if you look at pictures of Cord himself, he's just running around without a shirt right, on. Right, right. You know, his muscles are just right. gleaming in the sun. Arnold Schwarzenegger yep. style. Uh, and they paint themselves in war paint before going into battle, uh, usually in red or blue, because those are two of Cord's favorite right. colors, of course. Uh, they are famous for their war chants and rowdy nature. Uh, you guys met a a uh, worship, uh, cleric of Cord recently. Yeah, he chest bumped a halfling. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. was me. You went up to him, yes, right? Yeah, oh yeah. I, well, got... I went, I went to a whole bunch of different gods, <laughs> and then I ended up liking him the most because he like threw paint all over me, and yeah, I was he like, just "What am I doing?" Paint before you go, yeah, and I think, arena. I think I wanted to like chest. I was like chest bump. And he's like, "All right, cool." And I think like my face hit his stomach or something. Yeah. Um, also, in the world of Atos, there's a like I said, there was different parts of core worship that will go out and slay dragons. Well, there's this order called the Bane of Dragons. And the Bane of Dragons is a group of cord followers whose only goal in life is to seek out dragons and to kill them. Uh, they wear more armor than the majority of cord's followers, often donning dragonhide armor from their defeated foes, which I really like because, as we described with the depiction of cord, he's got all those little right, blue right. dragon, white dragon, red dragon, like, 
uh, hide armor pieces on him. Yeah. Uh, and when it's available to them, they'll cover themselves in dragon's blood rather than war paint, like I just described. Uh, some extremists even seek out to kill good dragons as well as evil dragons. So that's like, though they take it to the max. Those would be world. the extremists yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for them. <laughs> yeah. So would would Cord frown upon them because they're seeking out good dragons? I know Cord he doesn't have world, trust towards Cord dragons in general. Cord doesn't um, like the good dragons as well. He, um, but does he of, hate them to the point where he'd want people no, to kill well, them? He, I don't. He might. <laughs> But the rest of the pantheon kind of holds him back. He doesn't. Sure. He basically distrusts them. That's you know I described that right, in the right. dogma. Distrust all dragons. Yeah. And so if it was up to Cord, he might go out and try and fight with Bahamut and these other gods. But it's the other pantheon that's holding him back. Going, no, he's Bahamut is one of us. We can trust him. Right. So right. Uh, but Cord's you know, I think anybody who ever knows anybody about Cord thinks of Cord as a hot tempered, mm. crazy ready to fight kind of sure, guys. So, sure. um, so yeah, Cord himself might go out, uh, but I don't think Cord would get away with actually sending out some of his clerics to kill good dragons. There'd be a lot of right. problems there. So these are just the extremists, uh, the extremists in uh, among his worshipers. Uh, as far as temples, uh, there wasn't a lot that we could find as far as core temples, uh, but I have kind of done some work on core temples in the world of Atos, and so the temples of Kord are often connected to large arenas. Among the more barbaric societies, though, of Atos, Kord has many stone shrines built by just the strength of human hands. So uh, they believe that you have to lay huge boulder upon boulder and just build these big spires to Kord and to, as a show of their human strength. Nice. Very cool. As far as relics go, there's there's quite a few SRD ones that are that are... Pretty stinking cool, I would say. Uh, the first one is the Belt of a Champion, which is a it's a gem-studded belt, which uh, gr- is granted by Cord to a favorite gladiator once a decade. So this is something that does not pop up very often. So if you see somebody with the Belt of a Champion, you know that they have been smiled upon by Cord or chest-bumped or whatever, whatever it is that Cord would do to show his favor. It grants a bonus to strength and aids in grappling and rushing opponents. But it ceases to function if its wearer displays fear. So the minute you display fear, whether it's you, if you fail a will save or whatever it is, the functions cease at that moment. You're no longer able to use it. The next one is called the Kelmar, uh, which is Kord's electric, dancing, intelligent greatsword, which is kind of cool. Uh, its, spe- its special purpose is to slay dragons, of course. Only Bahamut seems immune to its blows. And only those of godlike strength can restrain it from attacking dragon kin that come too near. So that would be interesting, especially if that was in your world, Mitch. If all of a sudden a dragon comes by and it's like, oh, I'm being pulled over towards this dragon. <laughs> that's, that's a cord sword himself. Like right. That is. So right. If cord lost Kelmar, yeah. If he I, somehow lost it, that'd be crazy. He'd be, uh, <laughs> well, you have pissed. you have a uh, you have a, a demigod who's related to Kord, yep, right? Yep, so it might be something that if he had it or something like that and he's mm-hmm. with your party, it's just like, all right, here we go. We're going this way, right? <laughs> I don't know if Kord would give us I don't know if he would either. His, uh, but his son. I don't know if he would either, but if for, some reason, if for some reason it fell out of his Kelmar grasp. Kelmar 2. <laughs> yeah, Kelmar point two, the evil Kelmar. The next one is called the Sword of Mighty Thews. It's a weapon crafted in homage to Kelmar. It is a dragonbane weapon that confers immunity to dragon fear and grants a luck bonus to attack. So there you go. There's your there's your weapon. For if it was made intelligent, yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, in Atos, I've created two more artifacts of cord. Uh, the first one is simply called Dragon Bane. 
Uh, and it is basically what you would think. It's a legendary great sword made from the horn of an ancient red dragon. Uh, it is enchanted with powerful bane magic against all dragons and their kind. This is seen as an unholy weapon amongst good and evil dragons and dragonborns alike. The next artifact is the Gauntlets of Titan Strength. It is a legendary pair of gauntlets that Kord gifted to a, the barbarian Namdor during the Heroic Age. And all this is lore from Atos, so bear with me. Uh, Namdor used the gauntlets to free his people from the terrible oppression of a white dragon. Namdor was, however, fatally wounded during the battle and is said that he has died somewhere in the White Mountains. And it's said to this day that these gauntlets are just chilling at the top of one of the mountains in the White Mountain uh, mountain range, uh, waiting to grant godlike strength uh, to someone who finds it that's a true warrior. Uh, so, if you guys ever go back and visit the Zankazad, Chris, and you're a barbarian, maybe you want to take a climb to uh, the mountains of I uh, might have to. the White Mountains. Yeah, I might have to. <laughs> if we ever go back to a Zankazad, make sure that... Uh... I play a barbarian, okay. so I can do we'll that. Do. <laughs> Tinzian, would you like to go first? Okay. Um, Cord is all about courage. Cord is also about all these other things that we've discussed and uh, <laughs> you guys have mentioned. Exactly. What if Cord has, you know, for as far as he can see, and what his current occupations are, um, has managed to do, quote-unquote, everything, or at least in his mind, has been, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, told to do anything. He He's is then the boss. <laughs> He is the boss, but he is then challenged to show courage and go down and complete a series of human tasks. Hmm. Um, this could be by one of the trickster gods or you know something else, but he has to go down, join a party for a bit, and um, you know this maybe someone is trying to mess with this stuff uh, because he won't be around or for something. But uh, it brings Cord in with the Kind of Superman, something rising. He's got to be a little bit like Clark Kent, or has the right, villains right. of Clark Kent. And you sort of see how Conan will do in a China factory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I mean, because he could literally destroy anything he wanted just by touching it. I yeah. like that idea. Yep. So, you, would you then, in that scenario, have your players then come across Cord without knowing that this is Cord, and kind of have to figure this out and maybe then help him? They could, or they're so used to, it's, it's kind of difficult because they're so used to being swept up on the winds of change and yeah. the winds of this and the winds of that, that, you know, someone coming in, kicking in the door, pointing at all four of the, you know, four of the members and going, you come with me, um, you know, raspberry sherbet's being, you know, sold out here, mm -hmm. blah, 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 or just picking them up, grabbing them, flicking them under his arms and walking out the door. They might actually not blink too much of an eye at that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, you know what you could do is you could have them join an arena battle, and then the last fight is between this guy, who's Cord, and then you just kick yep. your butt. But <laughs> you're like, why is this guy so strong? Just one punch, and he goes through the wall. <laughs> it's going to have to be something that Cord is going to have to show courage for, because yeah. you you can talk a lot of courage, but actually showing it. So I would actually probably put Cord in a situa in situations where the rest of his you know strengths don't lie. Sure. You know, he's act he's actually got to do something that is not just redundant and simple for him. Because hmm. um, I, I even sort of view, like, the Trials of Hercules as being too cordish yeah. to satisfy here. 
So literally, it would be cord in a china shop type <laughs> thing where, you know, him destroying something by looking at it is, isn't going to work. Yep. Right. All right, Chris, share yours. Yeah, so mine is one that I'm, I kind of did a little bit with you guys in my world, but uh, Mark hasn't gone back and finished it yet. But uh, in, in the world that you guys were just in, we talked about one night in one of the past story times about how Mark's character got involved in an underground fighting league mm-hmm. that culminated, it was throughout this whole country of uh, Brahmin, and he took part in the city of Milner in an underground because he looked big, looked burly. He was approached by some some bigger and burlier guys that said, hey, come and join us in our underground fight league. Duke it out. He, I, they Basically, they go through each round where they don't get healed afterwards. It's just however many hit points you have. You just have to make it through the whole rest of the fight. And if you make it to the end with one hit point left, you're the winner that time. Uh, and so what ends up happening is all throughout this world, all throughout this land, there's different underground fight leagues going on, and it all culminates every year uh, with the champions, the championship of championships. So each each city has a championship each week, or each each month. Sorry, they have one each month where the winner qualifies for this World Games. They're given the slip of paper that says, "Hey, at this date, come partake in the actual World Championship of the Underground Fighting League." And it's all in order to honor uh, who Court is and what Court is all about. So. Uh, hopefully Mark's character remembers that because it'd be cool for you guys to see it. So I know he did for a little while. He was like, yeah, I want to go back and do this. And now I think he's kind of just forgotten about it. So I don't know. But that, that would be my idea is do some sort of uh, underground fight league or or if it's somewhere where Cord is actually worshipped out in the open, uh, go ahead and, and make it something that's a regular thing that you might find at a temple or they clear out a smith shop so that they can set up this fighting arena so that they can do their, their fights in order to honor Kord. Um, mine is, we've talked about how Kord does not get along with dragon kind, uh, his enemies with the, the evil dragon gods. Uh, in the world of Atos, kind of like I shared, we take this a little bit, I take this a little bit further and get a little bit more into depth with the lore of that. Uh, and so one thing that I thought would be a really cool campaign idea is if your players were all uh, totally into being all worshippers of Cord, uh, and they can be they can be the strange Cord Paladin, right. <laughs> but you can have you know barbarians, fighters, whatever it is, but all followers of Cord who the campaign is centered around a a war with evil dragons and dragon kind, and so. The worshippers of Kord are going to be at the forefront of trying to take these evil dragons down and trying to uh, bring them to justice. I think it'd be a, at least the way that we play Kord um, in my world. He's a you know with smacking the paint, the red and blue yeah. war paint on and everything. I think it'd be a even if it was a short campaign, it'd be a pretty fun campaign to have fights between dragons and a bunch of. Uh, Cord worshippers in one group. That would be pretty crazy. All one one goal, just all hyped up to go killing dragons. That'd be sweet. (laughs) I can just imagine. Don't give them weapons, and they're just like eight of them trying to pull a wing off of a dragon. Oh gosh, why would they not have (laughs) weapons? That'd be terrible. (laughs) No, I'm just saying, if they didn't for some reason, just complete barbarians. There's like rust monsters that go out before the uh, dragons. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Uh. Okay. Following a spoiler, it is also not canon because I may decide to change all this um, by the time. <laughs> Retcon, that's cool. 
But what I'm going to talk about is a, um, it's called the Green Empress. And she is a green dragon that is, uh, the party's been interacting with now for several episodes. And what is what one would normally think in the classic sense of a green dragon? What sort of behavior? Attitude. Kind of crazy, <laughs> chaotic, I would imagine. Greedy. Is that This one's not, not this that one case? Is Nope. Nope. This one this one is actually a very interesting dragon. But uh, we'll go through her titles. Um, she's known as the Emerald Warden, Empress of the Green Dragon Empire. Uh, the party managed to work enough diplomacy roles that the lizard, uh, lizard community, lizardmen community, and uh, empire now exist peacefully without reclaiming their old borders. Essentially what happened in the previous episodes were um, a land from Bygone, the previous era, superimposed itself over the current land, and this brought about the re-manifestation of uh, the Green Empress. So the lizard men, of course, wanted to reclaim their own territory, so did the dragon, but um, they decided to work with the new inhabitants of the area. So there's now kind of this melding of the place, but... I think as far as my players go, her greatest title is She Who Lurks Behind You. Hmm. Okay. She always kind of just shows up behind you, whether in full <laughs> dragon form or uh, some sort of mental communication or something along those lines. But she affectionately or not affectionately, it remains unclear or remains unclear as to why she does it, but she tends to refer to everyone as pretty. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> nice. I'm getting kind of a mix of a... <laughs> I don't think this is what you're going for, but right now I'm thinking Batman appearing behind you with a Gollum-like voice going, pretty. <laughs> kind of. There's, there's, there's something... You know, green dragons will normally hoard a lot of stuff. They're very possessive. They're yep, very, very right. jealous. In this case, um, she's not doing that, but she has some sort of interest in this party, which has done a lot of amazing things. Um, but there's something about each one of them that she sort of not necessarily treats them like a bauble by any means. They're not a, a treasure to her, but there's something that she finds interesting about them. So therefore they're pretty to her. Gotcha. But so she it's, says it, it's not quite like Marvel collector villain style where she's looking to add them as if they were treasures themselves, but a, a little bit of that there where she's like, she, she sees interest in them. There, there, there's interest, and sometimes it comes across like a cat that has its favorite toys. Gotcha. There you go. Right. And, and, and it keeps them from getting killed, but the cat may lose disinterest, you know, be, get disinterested and not kill them anyways. It's just it, it, something of how the relationship has been working out so far. She generally will appear behind someone. Um, she seems to actually take a great deal of care with the party, and I can explain that in a, in a moment. I've only got a certain number of these fields filled out, and then we'll go over, but uh, I'll continue after that. She's what I believe to be more of an intermediate power. Um, due to coming out of this isolation, uh, she is still recovering some of her power. Her alignment, and this is part of the world thing, the characters interact with a lot of interesting things. They've done a lot of weird things, so as far as the characters are concerned, she could be chaotic neutral. Okay. She could be also extremely evil, and the characters just don't know that. Right, just based or, off of different interactions that they've had with her. 
Yeah, well, if, if, if you listen to the series, and I know this is a lot of work for people, but if you listen, sometimes the actions of the characters don't match the actions of the alignments that are on the sheets. Of course. Sure. Sometimes some people have written me going, wow, this is a campaign about really evil characters that think they're good <laughs> going through this. So it could just be a matter of seeing from, you know, the other turning the tables and seeing the perspective from the other eye of the beholder where, okay, you know, the evil, evil people have to interact with the other evil people. There's still going to be things. They're still going to go out and do stuff. They're still going to have adventures. Or is it the case of these guys are just really lucky. They're having flexibility within their alignment and they're just meeting a lot of really interesting things. And this dragon is actually, you know, sort of a chaotic. It's it's part of the theater of the mind thing. You draw your own, draw your own conclusions, yeah, based on what's there. So as I, far as the party is concerned, they think possibly chaotic. Now I have a question: Does the party know that this is a god that they're speaking to? No, they just they know that it's dragon. Um, so far, they have quote unquote defeated Orcus. Mm-hmm. They have, quote-unquote, um, foiled Lolf by destroying an entire underground uh, city for the drow. Then Impressive. taking certain members of that drow civilization above ground and setting up a city with them. Yeah, it's really kind of, they've kind of done a whole heck of a lot. Nice. Uh, so they've uh, dipped their toes into all these different types of <laughs> yeah. evil they, gods' domains. Yeah. So, um, let's see here. Portfolio. Mists. Oversight. She is actually a warden of a um, jail, a big, a big uh, special prison that holds an as to yet unknown big bads, big bads, whatever you want to call it, type thing, scaly kind, and craft. She hmm. has been giving members of the party either directly or surreptitiously items that will protect from her own rough weapons. Hmm. Because there's a big war because, you know, there's been a jailbreak, a bunch of stuff is happening. She's actually trying to protect the party, get them involved, because she knows that they do big things. Trying to get them involved, if she wipes them out on a bombing run with a breath weapon, that yeah. does her good. That, yeah, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> so she does the mists more so for the cloak concealment surprise factors than actually a weather deity. The oversight in being a warden, her jealousy, her hoarding, whatever thing, has taken on this different manifestation of, no, this is her prison. She is going to do the best she can to keep this prison intact, etc., etc., etc. Scaly kind, she's got this entire lizardman, essentially, um, empire that has phased back into the world with her. She keeps them under control. And the craft, as I said, she makes it. It's not realized yet if she is a craft deity, much like Moradin, or she knows how to make things to do specific things or what that is. This is kind of all sort of a general thing. Her domain's pretty much the similar deal um, as before. No known superiors. As far as she knows, everyone that she used to interact with is dead. Because she's been in isolation for a little while, correct? Yeah. Okay. Essentially, this got ripped out of reality and she just got plopped back into it. Okay. So what deities may or may not be there, unknown, it's unknown, you know, in terms of games, is she really a deity or what the deal is? She's just known by the party as being something or someone that is very strange, doesn't seem to want to kill them directly, and 
is definitely more powerful than they are combined. Not to say that they may find a way, you know, the MacGuffin to wipe her out just because they sneeze or something. <laughs> but right now, she's the focus because she's been pushing them into the war. Pretty interesting character. If you look through the different episodes, you will actually find the ones where she meets up with Xanatari. Um, the party has finally made camp. Xanatari goes out into the woods, steps over a whole bunch of logs, and Moss covered this and that, encounters an eyeball in the shadow, looking at her that sort of opens up, addresses her as pretty, and it turns out all the logs she was stepping over and things were actually part of the tale. Oh. So, so as she's running back to camp, the dragon is sort of unfolding itself, and they think that you know the dragon is going to come charging after them, but the dragon is actually sort of making introductions to them in different ways. Like, she'll show up in a tree above, like, someone will set up guard against her. They'll go sit in a tree, and <laughs> she'll somehow appear up on the branches above them, look down and be like, hello, pretty. <laughs> you know, kind of thing, just this weird, making herself very known. Sure. Um, makes me think of, uh, what was it from Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire Cat? Yeah. <laughs> That's what that makes me yeah. think of. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you, if you sort of have the mannerisms of the Cheshire Cat without the, I don't know, there's a certain part of the cat that's not quite there. Right, right. <laughs> Especially the cat part. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But um, that's just what that reminds me of, it, it being up in the tree looking down at Alice. And, head cocked. Yeah, right, right. But the, the party, I should say, is on what's known as the Path of the Immortals. And so far they've accomplished, well, three of them have accomplished two tasks of that path. Um, and then one has done one. So they are known to the deities. They're picking up sort of, you know, uh, intern offers. You know, offers to be interns for one deity or the other. Kind of getting small slivers of portfolios of their own at this point. So she knows that she's dealing with people that could be considered peers. But she's definitely got her own schedule of right now, I just need to protect this and get this place sealed back up. What happens afterwards, whether she's friend or foil, remains entirely to be seen until it happens. Very cool. I like that a lot. That's a that's a really cool idea. I like the idea of having the god that takes either human form or is following around the group. That's that's kind of interesting. I to love me. the idea of the characters interacting with a god and them having no idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> that they're interacting with right. a god. Like that's always <laughs> we've had that happen in our worlds before, and it's always. Uh, Fun as a DM, I'm sure you have those moments where you just can't help but smile to yourself knowing who the NPC is while they don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they, they, they've also dealt with such big things that sometimes them dealing with deity is kind of like, you know, pfft. Yeah. Yeah, trying to get them to go to the post office is, is a task. <laughs> but the interactions get really interesting when, um, in a recent episode, she appeared um, to place a charm on the dire wolf that would help protect uh, Xanatari's dire wolf that's her mount. And she appeared in the party after the party had gone to sleep. The watch person saw her. She appeared as one of the other party members, but made that other party member appear not to be in her bedroll, hmm. going around and interacting as if she was that party member, almost like, you know, the as you sort of sip a fine wine, sipping the humanity of it but there was enough telltales that they figured out you know he figured out what was going on right but still there was the 
what deities do for fun or sometimes just the quirks they go through to get something done. She's she's been she's been kind of fun to play. I bet, and it's it's going to be one of those things that hopefully your players aren't listening, and if so, you said you might change this anyway, so it's not canon, but that that's going to be a fun moment when that reveal finally comes for your players. It's like, what the heck? We've been dealing with a god the whole entire time? That's going to be cool and for it, them. And it's not a deity that sits them down and explains things and goes, blah, 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 blah. It's literally just she shows up and goes, pretty, and gives them the, you know, gives them the barest minimum to get them moving again. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, so it's not a, not a chatty deity, so I, I'm not doing this by imposition of will. I'm doing it by imposition of this weird thing is going to come popping back and it'll come back here really quick. Okay. Right. All right, so now for the god that I created for my world, Nyax. Mitch, you guys ran into some Nyax worshippers. Yes, we did. Uh, you saw a tapestry on the wall behind one of the altars of Nyax. Yes, you showed us a it's picture. It's pretty, cre- pretty creepy, creepy looking. looking guy, yeah, 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 very creepy looking. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of lore about him, uh, going to share a little bit of what he looks like, how he, uh, how he became a god, because uh, he didn't, he started out as a god, but he was a lesser god. I, I, he ascended to a greater power god. We'll, I'll explain a little bit of how he did that in a little bit. Uh, but first, his title, I mean, his name is Nyax. His titles are Darkness, Deathbringer, Promiser of Immortality, which are his three big ones within the world of Panthea. His power level is greater. He's, he's a male god. His alignment is chaotic evil. His portfolio, he can be seen in death, deception, hatred, things of that nature. He used to have a superior uh, who was Erythnal, but since ascending to greater power level status for a god, Erythnal is no longer his superior. Get off my back, bro. <laughs> yeah, you'll find out. You'll find out in a minute. Uh, so when you... when you, I hope you never have to run into Nyax in my world, <laughs> but if you were to run into him, from the picture that you guys saw, he uh, looks human-esque, but he has some very... He started out more looking like a human, but because he delved further and further into dark magic in my world, it, it twisted him and it began to... He was twisted by the magic of hate and the dark magic of the world of Pantheon, and his form began to change. So what once used to look like a human now has been twisted into a more pale... He's very muscular. He's got three horns sticking out of his head, three long, two off the side, one off the front, uh, and it's very horned, devilish looking if you've ever seen... Pictures of, like, demons that have horns coming off of their head. This is what you would think of. Uh, he wears, he has large black wings that look torn, and, and he is adorned by a red cape uh, that's also torn. Many of the things that he wears are, are torn. Uh, his black armor is clean and very polished for a evil god, but it, it almost adds an element of evil, the fact that his armor is very cleanly polished. It, it, I mean, you could look at it and see your reflection in it. Uh, his black armor is very clean, it's polished, and he carries a staff that is known to have some powers that will bend anybody to do what he wants by simply pointing it at them. It has some. It's Loki's staff. Yeah, it has some pretty crazy <laughs> powers to them. So his relationships, he doesn't have. Nobody would really like him. Considering none of none of the gods <laughs> like him. He's kind of one of those dudes that just kind of took over domains and just. None of the good gods like him. There are some evil gods that will align with him when when need be. But he's almost so evil that nobody wants to be aligned with him. Arithnal was aligned with him at one point in time. He kind of created him to be his, like, lesser god, to be his servant. But so many of the followers of Arithnal began to really like Nyax that Nyax kind of hijacked 
many of Arithmil's followers. Sure. Yeah, and Nyax eventually took him over and now has him chained in a part of the underworld that nobody has ever been able to get into and free Arithmil. So Arithmil is just crazy and has gone even crazier. So if you guys ever visit my world uh, in a later stage when Arithmil gets like, free... No, world. when you visit my world when Arithmil gets free gotcha. again... It's a pretty dark time in in my world, uh, so you you guys might be able to go to this someday. So as far as dogma, uh, Arithmal's followers are known to be cruel and very cunning. Uh, many of them, they're promised through his sacred text, they're promised immortality through the sacrifice of humanoid-type creatures. They go to great lengths in order to make these sacrifices, and you guys kind of ran up against these uh, They'll mainly do it through kidnapping of the poor or the travelers in a city that they live in. The person, whoever comes across these sacred texts, they'll they'll build an altar with a large painting. You guys saw that's yep, a large yep. painting of Nyax in the background. And behind it, which you guys found out later, there were some daggers on the wall. Mm-hmm. Mark ended up breaking one of them, unfortunately. Uh, he might want to recraft it after what I say next. Actually, I'll save that. I'll, <laughs> I'll save that for the later part. So the person builds a very large altar with this painting behind it. And they use these craft daggers to sacrifice and kill each person individually in front of the painting of Nyax, which Nyax is said to be looking through at the time of the sacrifices. They must kill approximately 40 individuals on this altar in order to fulfill the number requirement. They're promised immortality, so remember that part. It's not exactly as glorious as what they're promised through the sacred text. And so upon completing it, they transform into the things we fought. Into the things that you guys fought. And so upon fulfilling the requirements what they are promised is vastly different from what they are actually uh what they were actually thought they were getting so i'll talk about those monsters in a later episode when we come out next episode with our with our raw real monsters with our raw real monsters episode uh, but basically, but just, they turn basically into they turn into something. Not what they expected. Not what they're expecting. And I'll talk a little bit more about that transformation and lore behind them then. Something more about the worshippers is there's no real organized meeting place for Nyax uh, because once the clergy go through with the transformation and the ritual, there's no clergy left. Uh, there's nobody to be able to recognize that there was somebody that was a clergy here. They're transformed into these crazy-looking creatures that you guys came up against. The only way that somebody becomes a worshipper of Nyax is by finding the sacred text that they stumble across. So if somebody, I don't know what you guys did with the sacred text, you guys obviously found some, what you guys did with the sacred text of Nyax in the world, make sure they don't get into anybody's hands, I'll just say that. Because if they do, people see these these great ideas of being promised immortality, and they decide to go after it, and it's not everything it's cracked up to be. Uh, so you left the, it out for reading material. Yeah, right. You left it out. It's like, hey, here's a... Just leave it out for millions of people to walk through. Yeah, like, yeah. put it on display. Hey, here was once this great sacred text. Everybody read it. So the temples, there's there's not... There's none that are found within major cities. This is not a... a I imagine it's outlawed. It's very much outlawed, yeah. Uh, people stumble across it in, like, old basements of old homes uh, that have been abandoned. They find them in caves. They find them in dungeons, sewers, all these places that are kind of off off the beaten path from where... A large metropolis would be. But as far as building any specifically designated to Nyax, you won't find any. Festivals, there are, there's not any that are set in stone on a calendar, but you can usually find what's called a feast to Nyax around many large major holidays in the world of Panthea. Um, that reason being, the poor and the travelers are needed for the sacrifice to Nyax, and so they usually throw them around that time when there's a lot of poor that are going to be out begging and a lot of travelers that aren't going to have a place to stay. 
So these people that are looking to fulfill the rituals throw these feasts around this time. They disguise it as this. We really want people to come here, have a place to stay, have food, and that way they can go one by one and start killing these people through the sacrifices. So it's called the Festival of the Nyaks. happens around most major festivals in any world, any city, at any point in time. Uh, there's a couple of artifacts, which I'll talk about the daggers that I left intentionally for this yep. part. They're called Nyaxian daggers. These artifacts are each crafted by the individual people. They're not something that you can buy in a store or find at a temple to Nyaks. There's specific instructions in the Holy Scriptures that people have to go through and craft these themselves. It is a bloodthirsty dagger. It has to be enchanted. It grows in power with every hit. And once the dagger hits three times in battle, it gains a plus one modifier for the rest of that battle. Once it is cleaned off, though, it loses its bonuses. Every minute it doesn't make contact, it loses three of those stacks. So it loses a plus one modifier. The highest it can go up to is plus four, though. So it can get it can get pretty crazy, but if it's not continually drawing blood, it's not going to keep that power for very long. So you think, now Mark really want, should want to keep that <laughs> dagger because that can get pretty crazy pretty quickly. I don't think he'd use daggers too much. I don't think but... he would, but you could give it to somebody <laughs> yeah, and they could they could grow in power well, rather quickly. I, I think we'd probably still keep to it. We're, we're good characters, I think. Honestly, after listening to all of this, I'm like, ugh. I gave this to the Temple of the Court. I yeah, feel like this yeah. is kind of unholy. Well, crap. they they know who Nyax is. They destroyed know. pretty much yeah. everything in there because they were like, yeah, Cords, Cords. And hey, now those Nyak worshippers can see that we turned into a, a Temple of Cords. Right, right. Sticking it to yep. them. Uh, so there, there's there's two myths and legends to go along with Nyax. One is it's it's lore at this point in time of your guys's point in time in the history it's a long long time ago when Arithnal was first chained up uh it's called the dark wars and during this war during these wars it was said that nyax harnessed the power of his dark magic and and really learned how to use it well uh he well is kind of a relative statement to whether you're <laughs> evil or whether you're good uh but he he came up with a way with this dark magic to blend humanoids and animals together to create an army that was so grotesque people didn't know how to handle what they saw. And so people would see things like a human mixed with a wolf. Some of those would be standing upright, kind of like a lycanthrope. Uh, other times they would be running on all fours with just very, I mean, they would be very grotesque. They'd be mixed with rabbits, so some of them could move really fast. Mixed with goats, mixed with all of these crazy, I mean, mixed with horses. So they it was just a very weird form of an army coming at you. And his reasoning was he wanted to strike fear and confusion and be like, what in the heck am I supposed to do against these things in this war? And so that's the kind of lore behind the Dark Wars. Everybody knows about the Dark Wars, but that part is kind of like, did that really happen? Did it not happen? Nobody really knows. That's one of the legends behind it. The other is, is that the people are promised eternal life through the Holy Scriptures. It's not exactly what they are thinking as far as immortality they're thinking like i'll be able to rule forever as a as a human the way that i am because i went through and gave nyax these sacrifices of the 40 individuals but i'll talk more about the creature that comes out of the transformation in our next episode the raw real monsters episode so chris how would you use nyax like if the listeners want to take nyax and put them into him into their world and uh, cause some fear with their players. <laughs> yeah, I think. How'd you use him? Yeah, I think not giving setting. too much away about the the enemies that or the the creatures, which I'll share a little bit on the next episode. You could you could make up one of those festivals like we did in in my world. If you listened uh, back, I 
it was quite a while ago now, but you can hear about the festival where these people come in, they bring all of their worshippers in, and your players might have to come up against this sacrifice that's taking place in your world at that point in time if you decide to put something like this in your world where they have to foil the plan of the Nyx worshippers or if they just have to flat out fight these beasts that end up transforming out of these out of the humans that did all of these sacrifices. So that's one thing that you could have. Um, you could have... Or even without listening to the next episode, if you want to put Nyx in your world, you can create your own crazy, creepy beast that these things turn into. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very much so. Very, yeah. Make them as... This is just a point in time for you if you want to create a creature. Just make it crazy. Make it insane. You could also do a plot hook where somebody was kidnapped. Uh, it doesn't have to be around a festival. It could be somebody just goes missing and you're commissioned to go and find this person. And you find out whether it's through following in their footsteps or stumbling across this dungeon that this person's locked in. You find out that there is this worship to Nyaks happening in your world and you have to eradicate it. Because... No good lord or king of a city is going to allow this to happen in their city. They're not going to allow people to... I mean, unless the unless the uh, the king goes insane himself, he's not going to allow for just people to start missing randomly for these sacrifices to take place. So that's, I mean, that's a couple of ideas that you could do for, for the god Nyrx. So we hope that you have been inspired and have enjoyed... Uh, the stories and the lore that we've shared about these four gods. Uh, we want to thank Tinizen. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Dungeon Masters Block. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and we are going to be going next to our mailbag of holding. But before that, uh, Tinizen, uh, we're going to say goodbye to you. Uh, but once again, thank you so much for being on. If our listeners would like to write to you and tell you everything that they loved about the Green Empress and uh, maybe ask you some questions about the Green Empress or other gods or uh, just talk to you in general about D&D. How can they reach you? The easiest way is via Twitter, um, at Tinzian, T-I-N-Z-I-E-N, or the Death Before Dishonor page. I can also be um, reached by uh, Tinzian at gmail.com. And um, we do have a Facebook page. Uh, you can find that pretty easily. And uh, just as an additional plug, please look at the Gray Area podcast, which is an interview with interviews with game developers and producers, and it's all sort of kind of the things that you don't find on Taku and the like. That is at Genesee.com, J-E-N-E-S-E-E.com. Or um, we're trying to put together a clearinghouse mega feed on bantercast.net, B-A-N-T-E-R-C-A-S-T dot net. Awesome. awesome. And we'll add all those into the, into the show notes so that you listeners can get in touch with him and see everything that he's working on. All right, Tinzen, say your goodbyes. Good enough. And with that, we are heading to the mailbag. <laughs> They've been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day, okay? All right, welcome back to another segment of the Mailbag of Holding, the place where we share ideas, stories, and questions from you, the listener. This week we have an email from Chris Sprague, and Chris tells us about uh, a couple of his friends wanted to try and play D&D, &D, but they had never done it before. 
And so they were like, oh, yeah, I have interest in it. Yeah, yeah, I kind of do. Like, let's do it sometime. And basically he said, hey, not sometime. It's easy. Let's play right now. Because they were, like, worried it was going to be too many right. rules. Like, they had, like, a lot of, like, hesitation. Hard in to it. get into. Because, I mean, you look at the you look at the books. They're, they're pretty big if you're like, yeah. hey, let's just up and play right now. Yeah. And I think there is this, uh, this thought that when people haven't played and it's late, they've never played before, that they look at those books and they think, i got to read all of right, them. Right, right. I have to know all of that before I, I start to playing. To play this. Because a lot of games, when you break out a board game, you do need to read the rules to know how to play. Right. Or somebody's teaching you. And so this, in this sense, he's like, no, right now, let's play. It's easy. And so they hesitated because they thought they were going to have to roll up characters. And he said, no, we don't have to do that either. Let's just start playing right now. And so he says, so I ironically said to them, you are standing at the bar of a tavern, ears ringing, and you are both smoldering, and behind you is a trail of destruction. The entire bar is standing, staring dumbfounded at you, and you can't remember anything. So basically he shared with us that he had listened to our podcast and heard us talk about the amnesia technique uh, for like a character form. Right. I think that's when we talked about it was in our flawed episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he used that as a way to kind of be like, all right, you don't have character sheets? Guess what? You uh, you guys have amnesia. Here's the story. And so they played a very story-driven uh, first time of playing D&D, but he was able to, with that, having them have amnesia, allow them to write down stats as they went and write down, like, oh, well, I was really good at this, and I didn't know this. And he also said it was a really good way to use it as a tutorial kind of sense right. to be able to teach them how to roll different skills, how to roll for attack, how to do this, how to do that, because he said, well, they had amnesia. They couldn't remember anything. Yeah. And he says that it's, as they were going, it turned into a really, really cool story as they were filling in the gaps of who their characters were, both uh, on a sheet of paper and in backstory, and it really has been a really fun campaign, and they've been drawn into it, and it's been a great way to get these people who had never played D&D before starting to play starting to role play. I think that's such a great idea. Like we talk about this on the podcast all the time, but you know, rules are important, but it's it's the role playing that really yeah. keeps us at the very The least rules shouldn't hold it. you back from role playing. Exactly. Yeah. And so he was able to really just delve them in and I think that's a great way to start new players off because oh, yeah. it it really hammers home the role playing aspect. Well, it doesn't. Players. It doesn't bog them down yeah. with all of the rules because that, like we've said, can be very daunting. This is a good way to get people hooked right away from the beginning. To a new player who's never played before, the rules can be can be that daunting, and other players who've played a long time who know the rules can be really daunting and um, can kind of scare you in the fact that they're like. Uh, they're going to be mad because I don't know all the rules, and I'm going to have to study, and I'm going to have to do all these things. Right. And so it might draw people away, but that role-playing aspect is is what everybody should be coming around in, in the game of Dungeons & Dragons too. And so he was able to kind of give them their first impl- impression of a D&D game, saying, this is a role-playing game. Right. Let's role-play. You're right. I love that. That. And just the this fact isn't a rules-playing yeah. game. This is a role-playing game. Just the yeah. fact that he was able to just say, hey, let's just sit down and start playing. Like, that is, unfortunately, what a lot of people would say is one of the flaws with D&D is that you can't just, like, you grab a magic deck, you can just sit down and start playing. You can't just sit down with D&D and start playing. And he said, nay, we shall do this. Yeah. We shall sit down and just start playing. 
I like it. I would almost argue that D&D is easier to just sit down and start playing than Magic. Especially, I mean, if you've played Magic before, you could pick up any deck and be like, all right, I know how lands work, I know how enchantments work, I know how this works. D&D, it's like, it's more of a guidelines than anything. It's like, okay, we can we can do this the way that, you know, he did in the email. I think it's almost easier to sit yeah, down yeah. And, and play. Definitely in that. I, I, think, I think what I more meant was just that the idea of not rolling up character sheets and starting to play D&D might scare some people. Oh, but I'm gotcha. glad it didn't for them. Yeah. And that's but you're absolutely right. Magic has a lot of rules that can oh, yeah. be very, very, very confusing and yeah. confusing at times. It's still but, confusing even to the pros. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh thank you, Chris, for sending in that great idea. Uh we hope that this maybe helps somebody else out there go, I have this friend who wants to play, but they don't want to roll up a character. They don't like they don't want to take the time because they don't know exactly how amazing this game is yet, so they don't want to take that time to prepare, hey, this is a great way to get them started and get them playing and see if they like role-playing in general. So, thank you, Chris, for yeah, sharing thank you that very story. Much. Well, that's all we have for you today on this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block. We hope that uh, the ideas of the four gods that we share really got your mind working, and maybe uh, if you haven't already added in Cord or Mord into your world, uh, that you add them in, or now you have more ideas of how they can work and how different stories and uh, different adventures you can have with them. And if you liked uh, the god that Chris or Tinzian shared, take them, put them into your world. That would be a great thing for your players to come across a god they've never heard before about before and be able to learn about this. It's one of those moments like with the monster manual when, but you know your players have read through it Mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, I know what this god does. It's like, I know exactly. I've read, I've read countless material. Yeah. It's one of those moments where it's like, wait, what's going on? Who is this? Never heard of this guy before. Yeah. (laughs) But without any ado, Chris, if they want to contact us and tell us about how they loved this episode and how they loved the gods that have been presented, where can they contact us? Yeah, you can contact us at our Gmail account, dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. Send all of your things that are a little bit longer than than Twitter to there. We'll we'll both read through them and and respond accordingly. Uh, You can leave us an iTunes review. That would help us grow as a podcast. People see that we're getting good reviews and the community is growing. People want to get in on, on the Dungeon Master's Block podcast that way so hit us up leave us a review you'll get a shout out on the on one of the upcoming episodes you can also find us on stitcher if you would like to leave us an itunes shout out or an itunes review a five-star review uh we like we said in a previous episode i think it was last episode once we reach that hundred mark we're gonna do something really really special and so you want to get your itunes reviews in uh now we've had somebody write into us recently and say hey i don't have a i don't have an iphone so i don't I don't use iTunes, like, but I want to give you guys a review. How can I do that? Uh, well, you can grab that friend of yours' iPhone, and you can write in a review on iTunes and just write your name on it. Do that. Say, all right, hey, buddy, you have an iPhone. Can I see that for a second? Yeah, right. Snag, and then write, a, write us up a review with your name on that. But we want you to encourage you to go and do that if you haven't already, and keep listening. If you've written an iTunes review... Uh, you want to keep listening, something special is going to happen. Uh, that being said, you can also follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's DMs block on Twitter. Or like our Facebook page. Both of those places, you'll get updates on the show. You'll get DM resources, everything like that. It's a great place to be. But before we head out, we have a Patreon shout out for this week. Uh, Chris, let's get that drum roll going. Our Patreon member of the week is Andrew Houston. Yeah, thank you very much, Andrew. so awesome. 
Yeah, we love you. Thank you so much. Andrew Houston is a gold dragon. We fear you, Andrew Houston. Thank you Very so much, so much. Thank you so much for your contribution to our podcast. We really appreciate that. Uh, just one more added note. If you head over to our Patreon account, there is now a Platinum Dragon level. And so you might want to go and check that out. Got a pretty sweet reward on there. But without any further ado, that is our episode for this week. We hope that you enjoyed the Divine Spotlight series number two episode of the Dungeon Master's Block. The place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master. The most important person in the game. The only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. Have a good morning, evening, or night whenever you're listening. Keep on Dungeon Master. Goodbye.